0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Audrey Bonahan Hi, Audrey. How are you doing? Good. And uh, Jeremy Chang. How are you doing, Jeremy? Pretty good, Joe. Um, so this is a very special episode, as they—I mean, they're all—we say that every time we have one of these episodes because there's always something special about it. I think this is our first return guest, though.
1: A uh, second.
0: Who's the Who's the first? Had a
1: couple S.F.N. return guests, uh, Richard
0: Queenan. Oh right, yeah. So, so okay, so this is so never mind. Well, actually, this is the first time an S.F.N. guest is now in studio slash conference room with yes, us. Yes, okay. True. So he started from the bottom, and now he's here. Uh, Professor David Schneider, welcome to uh, Neurotransmissions. Hey, Thanks. Thanks for coming back, friend. Absolutely, of the, friend of the pod.
2: Friend of the pod, have been,
0: always will be. um, yeah. You're actually, thank you. You're very, uh, uh, good about like, you know, uh, liking us on Twitter and stuff. So <laughs> we appreciate I that. spent, I
2: kill too much time on Twitter. You're so, very uh,
0: good at Twitter. Um, I'm trying to wean
2: myself off of it actually. really? Yeah. I feel like, um, I don't
0: know. You don't find it to be like, kind of like something useful about it.
2: I find it to be uplifting,
0: like really? sciencey
2: uplifting. I feel like people talk about. People like to get on Twitter and talk about good things that are happening to them. Yeah, uh, they also talk about bad things that are happening to them. But like, you can selectively decide what you look at on Twitter, and uh, it's fun to see people succeed. And Twitter is a way that I get to like—it's one of the things I use it for—is to see colleagues and associates and yeah, who I wouldn't hear about these things otherwise. Like,
3: you actually feel like by promoting your papers on Twitter, you might get more citations.
2: Oh God, <laughs> I don't—I've never thought about that, but. Uh,
3: I'm seriously thinking about getting on Twitter for that reason. I,
2: I guess I don't. I don't th- think about trying to optimize my citations on papers. You know what? But there was an editor. God, I'm gonna. I don't remember who the editor was, but somebody mentioned that as a journal editor that they use Twitter as a way to kind of like feel out what's hot right now and what's not.
0: I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's,
2: it's almost just human nature, right? If you're on Twitter and there's a whole bunch of science chatter, you can't help but be. I don't know. Open to to inter to to uh, integrating that science chatter with whatever it is you're thinking about right now.
1: a field of uh, science paper search engine optimization.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and you know, bio. It's it's cool to see like there's a built-in like retweet this bioarchive paper or whatever, and you could see like what people are jumping on right away because either they knew it was coming out and they're excited about it or or, or whatever.
2: Yeah, the things I don't like about Twitter, though, is there is you know, obviously in social media, there's a giant mob mentality and I just, every too frequently, it's not that frequent. M- most of the time, Twitter's like a very harmonious place, but there are these kind of like mob moments oh, yeah. that really turn me off to the whole, to the whole thing. So Somebody to,
0: says something that maybe they didn't fully think through, like all the potential reactions and they just get piled on yeah, pretty yeah, bad. Yeah. Um, Well, uh, well, welcome back, David. It's, it's really good to see you. So last time we're going to sort of, I guess, recap this a little bit. Last time I talked to you at SFN, where were we? Somewhere in the country, somewhere (laughs) in the United States. Um, a different, we were in a giant convention center. Yeah. A lot more background noise. Hopefully. Um, uh, you were on the job market at the time. You were a postdoc in Rich Mooney's lab. Okay. And, uh, a lot has changed.
2: Probably. Yeah. I don't remember exactly when that was. Right. Because, uh, I think it was, uh, I was on the job market twice.
0: Right. I think that was the first time. Probably
2: the first time, probably the first time around. And I was probably, if it was at SFN, it was at the very, very early stages of being on the job market. Meaning that I probably hadn't even submitted any job applications yet. Yeah. And so, yeah, between now and then I have submitted job applications, gone on job interviews. Not received jobs. Submitted job <laughs> applications again. Job, gone on job interviews, and now I
0: run my own lab. Yeah. Yay! Wait, hang on. We have a button for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that that's really exciting. And um, you know, as somebody who's seen you basically throughout most of your neuroscience career, because um, we were grad students together, it's really it's nice to see you achieve all the stuff we all knew you were going to achieve. So that's, it's very, um, exciting. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about that, the job search in general, landing the job, you know, all the things that sort of go into that, because I mean, uh, a lot of us are at a stage where we're thinking about that stage or we're actively in the middle of this, like looking for, uh, the next phase, you know, faculty job sort of situation, but there isn't, you know, at least here at Max Planck, Florida, we don't have like a class on it. Like This isn't something you teach. It's something you sort of absorb from the community. Um, there aren't-
3: and as scientists, without a protocol, we don't know how to do it. Yeah, there, right.
0: aren't, there aren't as many books
1: about finding an academic job, uh, faculty position, as there are about going to grad school or finding a postdoc, right?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so year one, you, you applied to like how many, how many programs or departments did you apply to?
2: Yeah. Year one, I applied to three faculty positions.
0: Pretty Uh, prestigious places.
2: Yeah, exactly. The type of places that I think um, the idea was that if I got a job at any one of these three places, I would have jumped at it. Or at least that was my perception before I went to visit these places. You realize that as you go and look for jobs that you can kind of like... Before you start the process, you could make a list of all the places you'd be interested in and you can kind of in your own head kind of make a list of who where you think you'd most like to be and where you think you'd, right. eh, you know, I'd settle for this place. And then you go and visit places and that that list, I think everyone I've ever talked to says that that dramatically shifts in the rankings of individual places because what really matters most at the end of the day is, is kind of like is about fit and how comfortable right. you feel there. So, um, but yeah, I, I applied to three different places. Interviewed for jobs at these three institutions, and then and then didn't get them. And that's kind of just par for the course. I mean, I mean, being rejected for three jobs in a job cycle is kind of like standard. In fact, most people get rejected for many more than that because they apply to many more than that. It's actually pretty and,
3: impressive that you applied to three and got invited to three. It's not yeah, bad. It's good. not bad.
2: Um, but I do. But again, it's like if you get invited and don't get the job, what's happened? In fact, and so, you know, this comes down to. The there is a, there's a trajectory nowadays. I think where postdocs often do what's called like putting a couple toes in the water to tr- apply to a few jobs one year and not the next, um, and that's what I did. I think there were some major benefits from that. One was I kind of I one of the benefits was I I got over this um, concept. I I, I I I at least partially got over this concept of of imposter syndrome, which is, do I really think I'm ready for this? And I think when I first went on the market. I had a lot of that. And I think the process, maybe this is ironic, maybe it's counterintuitive, but through the process of, even though I didn't end up getting those jobs, I did really work through my imposter syndrome because one of the things I realized was that, yeah, I am ready for this. I actually shouldn't have any imposter syndrome. Um, despite the fact that all of the messages I was getting were that we're not going to hire you right now. (laughs) Um, so I don't know if that was just me or if that was just normal, but, um, but one of the, so one of the pros was you get to work through some of the kinks of this. You also get to go through the motions of like, well, what does an interview actually entail? How stressed out am I going to be when I'm, think, when I'm sitting across? You know, a lot of this is like having one-on-one conversations with people. What am I going to talk about? What are they going to ask me? That type of thing. Um, one of the approaches I took that I learned during my first process was to, if I was ever a little bit nervous about having a conversation with somebody, I, I I didn't like really pretend they were a different person, but before I would meet with them, I would Joe and I have a mutual acquaintance. I'll, I'll name drop him right now. His name's Ross Williamson and he's been a, a friend and colleague of mine for a long time. And I love talking science with Ross. He's excited. He's genuinely excited about everything. He's been on the
0: show actually. He's been on the yeah, show he's been on at SFN show. also shout out to Ross,
2: shout out to Ross. But I would sometimes think to myself, like you're just going in to have a conversation with Ross right now. And like, um, It was actually really helpful. And the reason was because when you go on job interviews, it turns out that um, one of the other pieces of advice that I got that I I took to heart was that if you get invited for a job interview, people are already really enthusiastic. You don't have to build up enthusiasm for you as a candidate from ground zero, it's already there. Like your job there is just to maintain their enthusiasm. So go into every conversation, assuming that there's already gonna be something exciting to talk about. They're interested in what you're doing you're presumably interested in the type of science that's happening at their institution. So there should be a lot of kind of mutual things that everybody's excited about. Um, And that was, that was another one of those lessons I learned through the first year was that um, if you're ever feeling like a little bit stressed or like, it feels like it's kind of like grueling and that it's a one way interrogation, that's actually not what it is at all. It's really just kind of a feeling out one another about your mutual excitement about science.
0: So, I mean, one of the things that I found disarming about various types of, interviews I've been on in earlier stages like trainee stages grad school postdoc is that oftentimes the people you're talking to are equally kind of trying to sell you on what they're doing to get you interested in maybe working with them I mean is it a sort of a two-way thing like that or is it is it really the focus is on you we're not going to be talking about the work of all the people that you're talking to or
2: um Gosh, like now I would go been, into
0: a grad school interview and they would pretty much talk about themselves the entire time and maybe ask, like, did you understand what I said? And I'd be like, yes. And they're like, okay, you're in. <laughs> you didn't understand. Right. What I thing. imagine the faculty job search is like quite different.
2: I think it's quite, it, it's, it is more different. It is more about the candidate. That um, means you spend a lot more time talking, um, which can actually be extremely draining. Uh but exciting at the same time. I mean, most scientists like talking about themselves. I mean, most people like talking about themselves. And if you don't really enjoy talking about your science, then maybe you shouldn't be out there trying mm-hmm. to like sell yourself as, as a scientist. but um, Or at least trying to convince somebody that they should give you a job as a scientist uh, in perpetuity. Uh, but I think, yeah, the conversations are much more about you and your work and how that's what you really plan on doing. Um, and they can be a little bit intense. I mean, there's they, people should be asking you tough questions about, um, you know, if you think about it from the side of the university, I like to think of the university as being a bit of a cross between a like a venture capitalist and uh, and an incubator for startups. And so the university is effectively going to give you some, some venture capital. We're going to give you a, here's a couple million dollars, and we're going to give you a little bit of space. And we're going to be this little incubator where you can set up your, set up your space. And their hope is that they're going to get a return on their investment, right? And that's actually the, literally the way that most universities work is they're going to give you some dollars and they're going to expect a return on investment of those dollars. Um, that comes in through grant money that you're going to bring in, and they're going to expect you to produce a product. And that product from science is uh, papers. And so the idea is they're gonna give you some seed money, and the expectation is you're gonna parlay that seed money into subsequent funds that you're gonna bring in to support yourself going forward. Uh, and they're gonna take a little cut of that off mm-hmm. the top every time, right? So that's their business model. Um and so I have no idea how I got on that conversation, but like when you go into these these interactions, you kind of think about
3: You have to sell your product.
2: You have to sell your product and and, and you should be excited about doing
3: that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um be excited about your science. Yeah. Um, so, so you're on, you you go on these interviews. So the the first time you got close, it didn't quite work out. Did you apply to three the next round or was it something quite different?
2: No, I applied to more the next round. So I I guess one thing I was going to say earlier was you do get some benefits from going on the job market and putting a toe in the water. You get to learn a lot of things about how the process works. The downside is that if you get an interview at a place and you don't get that job, they're kind of off the list for next year. You probably can't apply to that place again because you know, what's, you're not going to change as a scientist between year one and year two. You might have another paper come out. You might get a grant or something like that. But presumably, most places weren't making their decision based on that. They were making it based on some sort of fit. Um, and I think that's okay, right? I mean, you also have to learn that if they decide that they don't want to hire you, it's probably for the better because there might be like some fit things there where your science just doesn't jibe with the directions they want to go. And, and if you ended up in that job and there was a disconnect between visions, that's going to have ramifications for you later. Um, so... So yeah, so I did apply to schools and next year. I applied to all different schools because I couldn't apply to those same schools again. Um, and I think I applied to something around fifteen or sixteen different jobs. And um, I think that, from what I've heard, that's kind of on the low side of what people do. But I think it's 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 within if it's within the distribution of normal. But um, yeah, I applied to jobs, and I I really restricted it to places again where I could. Envision myself wanting to to work at that place, but mainly that was dictated by geography. I was like, there are places in this country where I think I would like to live. Um, in fact, in this world, I applied to jobs internationally as well. And I was like, there are places that I'd like to live, and there's places that I probably don't see myself living. I could be happy in those departments doing science, but geographically they don't work. And I think for many of us, we have family, and since we're trying to balance also like proximity to family, proximity to um our significant other's family. Um, Do you like the seasons? Do you like it hot? Those types of things. And so um, I ended up applying to pretty much all jobs that were in the northern half of the country and on the coasts or near big cities Mm -hmm. in the middle. Um, And so you kind of got to find a way. You know, I think what you don't want to do is to apply to a job. I think you need to ask yourself for every job you submit, if this is the only job that I get, will I be happy going to this place? Um, Because you don't want to get into a position where you get a job offer and then you end up turning it down. Right. And have to go because that can you can build some ill will from that and i think it's just not good form now it could happen that you realize through the process that that's a place you don't want to be and then you have to say no to that place you don't want to go to an unhealthy place or a place that's just not going to work for you but
3: or like uh, it happened to you you might get several offers and then you need to make a choice
2: totally totally i mean that's the best case situation right that's what you want to happen um, is you want to have you want to have choices I'll tell you that that's like the hardest thing to do though, the choices, because at, at, at every corner you're giving up, you feel like every time you, you, you start to think about going to one place, you think about giving up things at another place, and by and large, the things that you're giving up at each of these places is colleagues. I mean, to me, at the end of the day, that's the best thing you can look for in a place, is who are my colleagues gonna be? And it makes it so hard, because you can work on all of these other, you can negotiate for startup funds and for space, and think about, about that side of things. I, that stuff I kind of all works out in the wash. At the end of the day, you know, if, if you're banking in your scientific career uh, either rising or falling on a little bit of difference in the amount of money or space that a person, that a university gives you, I don't think that's the right approach. But what your career can rise and fall on is who your colleagues are, who do you get to spend your time with, who do you have the, the types of conversations that are going to influence your science going forward. That coupled with do I want to live in this particular geographical region, and will my, will I and my family be happy where we're going? So, to me, those were the two things that I ended up uh, balancing the most when I was trying to decide during the second round. When I was fortunate enough to have a few different places to choose between, um, to choose among, those were the big things that were on my radar of like, what am I trying to optimize here? And it was it was colleagues and hap- happiness at the end of the day.
1: So Were those uh, sort of considerations you were making at the, at the point where you're deciding where you're going to send out applications, or was that sort of something that you came to a conclusion about after you've gotten?
2: It it was both. I would say when I was sending out applications, I was much more, um, when I was sending out applications, I was thinking about that, but it was much less concrete because it didn't really matter. And, you know, I think one can argue with themselves and can convince themselves and I think can be very honest with that they could be happy in a lot of different situations. And I was pretty honest about that with my, like, you know, that I knew there were a lot of different places where I could imagine myself being happy if it was, if it was the only place that I had an offer from. But I think when you have a couple of real concrete offer job offers at some point, that's where the rubber hits the road and you, that's where you're really trying to decide amongst colleagues. I don't think you should really, I think your filter should be fairly loose when you're applying where to apply, when deciding where to apply. As long as there's not a, as long as you're not applying to a place that's like completely, you know, is off limits, right? Um, but otherwise, you should be a little bit more liberal. But then, when you're trying to make these decisions, I think at the I, I, my advice is colleagues is what you're looking for, and that that's what's really going to influence your, your your job satisfaction and the types of science that you're going to do.
0: Um, so, when you when you go on a lot of these different interviews, different parts of the world, how? universal is sort of the structure of the interview process. Are are there, is there a lot of variability? Is everybody doing chalk talks? Are you tailoring your chalk talk differently for different departments? Yeah,
2: that's a great, great question. I think historically there's been like, uh, the idea has been one candidate comes to campus. Maybe a department might decide to interview five candidates for a job. They'll bring each candidate one week apart, you'll come to campus for two days. On the first day, you'll give a seminar, you'll spend your time visiting with faculty, you'll have lunch with students, you'll have dinner with the search committee, and then on the next day, you might have a couple more meetings and you're gonna give a chalk talk. Um, We can talk about the chalk talk a little bit if you want. That's kind of like the most mysterious part of this whole thing, because it's something that most of us have never done before and many times will never do again. Um, So that's your kind of standard faculty interview, but there's a lot of ways in which that's different. So some places will bring you in for a seminar, but not have you give a chalk talk. And what they'll do then is they'll effectively, they've shortlisted the candidates to come in to give a talk, a seminar, but then they're going to do a further shortlisting for who's going to come back to give a chalk talk. The idea is that they don't want to sit through everybody's chalk talk. They're only going to bring people back for when they've really shortlisted them. So those are two styles where in each of those, there's one candidate coming in at a time. I'm going to go to that university. I'm going to be the only one there. Um, It's kind of nice. You get to see everybody. Um, and everybody's kind of focused on your science. The 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 other approach, which has become a little bit more popular, is the symposium style, um, where multiple candidates come in at once. You all give typically a smaller, a shorter talk. Uh, the candidates all listen to one another's talks. And there the 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 style can change a lot, can differ a lot from one institution to the next. So sometimes there are no chalk talks with that. Sometimes there are chalk talks. Um I was at one where there was literally not a single one-on-one faculty meeting, which is a hmm. real rarity in the job interview process. So like, how can I evaluate a department that I might want to join if I never had a chance to have a one-on-one meeting with any of the faculty at all? Uh, that was a little bit weird, but, uh, yeah, those are, those are kind of like the three main ways, ways that it Sorry. happens. But those are, but those are the general components of the interview, right? Is it's a seminar, a chalk talk eventually? Um, one-on-one meetings with the faculty, and and then what I would call kind of like informal interactions with the department, which is with students, postdocs, and faculty, which are informal but not unimportant. Those are really actually, you know, important aspects of uh, of them evaluating
0: you and you evaluating them. So there aren't too many curveballs they can throw you in this whole process. I mean, you know, practicing by going on, you know one job talk or another is good practice for the next one,
2: basically. 100%. That said, there's two, like one, one thing is you, you, everyone should always feel comfortable asking if you get an invitation to give a, to have an interview, you should ask, well, what's it going to look like? You know, is there going to be a chalk talk? Who will be at the chalk talk? How long is my seminar? What do you expect? You know, how much time would you like me to spend talking about the work I've done versus the work that I'm going to do during my seminar? Those are all questions, fair questions to ask. So you can really kind of Even if it was your only job interview, you can ask some questions to get a better feel for it. The chalk talk becomes the hard thing because, as I already mentioned, people have typically never given a chalk talk before they go on their first job interview. And then the other part is that really I find that no two chalk talks are alike. So because the chalk talk is really a interaction, it's a conversation between yourself and anywhere between three and 12 other people um, who... All have their own agendas of what they want to get out of this mm-hmm. and some people's agendas are running in parallel to yours and some are completely running orthogonal to yours and you don't know that going into it and so you are there to graciously you're there to try to explain to them what you're gonna do in your own laboratory over the next five to ten years to convince them that this is the type of science that they should be investing in um, but also to graciously accept and answer the questions that that they're asking um, But your number one, I guess your number two job after conveying your research program is crowd control. And so it's taking questions, fielding questions, but not letting yourself get derailed and ensuring that in the somewhere between 45 minutes and 90 minutes that you have slotted for your chalk talk, which they'll typically keep you fairly tight on that time frame, that you're able to make it through the entire thing that you want to talk about.
0: And so is that thing that you want to talk about sort of like, I mean the ones that I've seen or the practice ones that I've seen, it sort of looks like the outline to like an ro one It's like a few aims and each of them sort of like stepwise takes you through like five to seven years of like research basically. Yeah, I
2: think that that's, I think that that's it. Um, I think, I think the Chalk Talk can take on different scopes depending on where you're giving the Chalk Talk. There might be places that might want you to give something that's a little bit more of a big picture. Um, here are the big questions that I'm interested in asking without going into too many nitty-gritty details of how you're actually going to execute the experiments that are necessary to to actually get the answers. And I I, I think I kind of tended to... Error on that side more than the alternative, which is to um, kind of lay out something that's more explicitly like an R01, where you have three aims, each with three sub aims, and get into a little bit more nitty-gritty detail about what experiments you're going to do. Um, but I don't know that, again, I don't know there's a right answer, right or wrong answer. I think that sometimes I give a chalk talk and some people would be like, yeah, that was the right scope. And others during the same Chalk Talk would come up to afterwards and be like, you know, I really wish you hadn't gone into so much detail. You know, we're here to hear about your big picture stuff. We don't need to get any more detail than that. So, you know, within a single Chalk Talk, the people on the other side of the table often don't want the same thing as one another. And so you can't you can't win. I never walked into a single Chalk Talk after giving something like 10 of them and walked out feeling like, yeah. I crush that. Like that is, that's not a feeling anybody ever has in this world. Okay. Um, but the more you give, I, the more of them you give, I think the more comfortable you are with it not going as planned. I think that's really the, the key here is that it, you can't plan it. You don't know where it's going to go. And so becoming comfortable, um, Having it kind of go off the rails a little bit, especially the rails that you thought it was going to stay on, and being able to to bring the car back onto those rails is um, the art in the chalk talk. I mean, it's got there's got it's got to be the the science you're describing has to be solid too. But um, even if the science is solid, if you get derailed over and over again, yeah, it's tough.
0: In, in your prep work for this, are you are you doing anything to sort of try to predict? what version, like what, what sort of scale these people are going to want? Like, are you just sort of like going with your formula and then you're going to adapt to it as you need to like during the talk?
2: So, so my approach was the second one that I, I didn't try to predict how things were going to go ahead of time. Um, I didn't really prepare ahead of time, so I didn't give any practice chalk talks when I went on the job market. So the first time I gave a chalk talk was just like cold and I really like, I practiced for myself, like sketching out on the board, but I didn't never had an audience beforehand and it was a bad idea. I should have had an audience. You know, there's part of you is just like, it's its a little bit embarrassing to do that first one because you like, you know, you're going to mess it up and then to give it in front of people who you like want to like think really highly of you. But like you just got to do it. Um
0: You're just like sketching out Roman numeral one. And it's just like really shaky. <laughs> totally.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, that's one of the really important things you have to learn is like if I'm going to spend my entire time writing and talking to you, but my back is turned to you and I'm facing a dry erase board, people are, that's going to be a turnoff to a Mm -hmm. lot of people. Right. So you have to learn kind of the art of Of writing over your shoulder
0: (laughs) while you keep eye contact. So
2: if you can't write with your toes, you're screwed. Um, but yeah, this is totally, it's totally, there's a lot of these kind of like subtle things. There's also things like, well, you're often given a little bit of time before your chalk talk to put a little bit of information on the board. And so the question is like, how much do you pre-populate your board versus how much do you, um, have a preordained idea of how you're going to fill it in as you're going versus how much do you freeform given where the conversation's going. Um, there's all sorts of different strategies you can do for this. but
1: well, We've sort of glossed over this, but chalk talk comes from chalkboard, right? You're yeah, are oh, not yeah. preparing slides or anything.
2: That's absolutely right, most of the time. So the chalk talk comes from the idea that you're giving a talk on a chalkboard. You're going to walk into an empty chalkboard and have something on the order of 60 minutes to use that chalkboard and your own verbal communication skills to, to convince a group of faculty that they should invite you to join their, um, you know, cooperative that they have. Uh, and so, yeah. And nowadays we typically don't use chalk. I don't think I ever use chalk, but I use dry erase markers. I always brought my own dry erase markers. I had a pack of multicolored dry erase markers. I brought up dry one and it's oh,
0: like all about, there's around. nothing
2: worse. Um, so some places they do want you to use slides or they invite you to, to use slides. um, And I had one place where I I didn't want to use slides. So some places gave me the option and I didn't do it. One place said, well, you know, you got to use slides. And so I put together some slides and, uh, I actually don't really remember how that one went, but I know I had some slides,
0: you know, another thing just photos of your family, (laughs) (laughs) please put food in these mouths.
2: Um, You know, another thing, there's another aspect of the job interview that I didn't think about mentioning earlier, which is that a lot of places have started to do Skype interviews before they invite you onto campus as well. And those can be anything between, I did Skype interviews that were 15 minute, hey, we just want to get to know you a little better. Tell me about your science type of things. Um, Others were two weeks beforehand, they sent me a list of three to five questions and they said, we're going to ask you these questions verbatim. You will have two to three minutes per question to answer them. Prepare now. See you in two weeks. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, Very natural. To others where I want in one place, I literally had to give a 45 minute PowerPoint presentation over Skype. Which was effectively my entire job talk. And then you go on. Then you get invited onto campus and you give the same talk again, but just to a bigger audience. Um, so the Skype interview became, has become a pretty big thing. Um, and I, I think I understand it now that I'm on the other side of things, and I know that for a single job opening, it's not uncommon to get two to 300 applications, uh, many of whom on paper look fantastic, right? So the question is, how do you – you can, and you can only invite so many people onto campus to, to go through a, a, the full interview process. So the question becomes, how do you winnow that pool of applicants down? And I think the important thing for applicants to remember is that there is no surefire way of doing that. and. There are more than enough qualified and excellent applicants for every job, and a lot of those qualified and excellent applicants are not going to get that job. And they're also not even going to get an interview. And so not getting a job and not getting an interview is not a comment on your on your science or on you as a person even. Um, it has to do with fit. It has to do with who are the members of the search committee on that for that particular job at this moment, which is typically a, a group of three to five faculty in the department who are going to have uh, – of a uh, an overweighted choice of who the candidates are that are going to come in that year and so um, that might kind of pre-select a, a subset of candidates at the front end um, yeah
0: so you your second round is 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 highly successful you had a number of offers you had the difficult choice of having to you know, turned down some really exceptional departments with some great colleagues. Um, you end up at your, so now you're assistant professor in the center for neuroscience at NYU. Um, what is that transition like? So now that you have the job that you've been fighting for for years, basically your whole career has been building up to this moment. It's completely different than anything you've been trained for, and also your lab space isn't ready. And you know, you yeah. they tell you where your office is, and that's basically it. So, um, what 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 are you doing at that point? I mean, are you, are you? How do you how do you get to work at that point?
3: Yeah.
2: So, so you're absolutely right that you, people don't get a lot of training on what their job is when they transition from being a postdoc to a PI. Um, I don't think that if I think back, I like, it's not, I don't think I was working for that job. Like I wasn't looking like aspiring to that job my entire scientific career. I think, I think I speak for many sure. of us that it was just kind of like, I mean, I did a PhD cause I didn't know what else to do. And it was like, and I was pretty happy that I got accepted into a PhD program. i like, well, that's pretty prestigious. I guess I'll go do that, right? And yeah, then, yeah. then you kind of are doing your PhD program and you're like looking around you at what people do next and they go and do postdocs. So I was like, well, that sounds like fun. I'll go do that. It's like, I love science. I'm kind of sick of what I'm doing right now. I don't want to work in the same lab I'm in, but I, I bet it would be refreshing to go do something different. I mean, that's honestly, I think a lot of the thought process going through it as opposed to it being like, this is the thing I'm striving for. Here's my career path to get there hmm. and I'm going to get there. That said,
3: some people, are
2: like some people probably aren't. I'm not one of them. Uh, I wasn't one of them. I'm still not one of them. But but I love what I do. But what I do is very different than what I did as a postdoc. Right. So that transition, um, the transition is is I don't want to say it's tough. I, I found it to be a lot of fun, but it but it is you're, you're, you're starting to wear hats you've never worn before. And all of the hats that you've worn in the past no longer fit because those are not things that you're expected to excel at anymore. Um, but but I don't think it's quite that dire. I think a lot of the skills that you pick up as a postdoc and as a graduate student and kind of making it through this gauntlet, even if you weren't intentionally running the gauntlet, you were on it anyway. And a lot of the skills that you pick up become important. Um, especially I, I would say like a lot of the the soft skills that you pick up of just kind of like how do you, if you as a postdoc have interacted with graduate students or with postdocs in other labs or postdocs in your lab, even interacting with your PI and just kind of like feeling out how is it that, what does, what does a mentor-mentee relationship look like? Um, regardless of what side of it you're on, I certainly find that now I do so many things that are unintentionally I'm emulating my postdoc and grad school advisors. Even in ways that it's like, I, I often look back I'll, I'll have an interaction with a, with a student and be like, wow, that is just like what Sarah did. And I'll look back and be like, God, I used to think like.
1: How, how did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> like,
2: what, what like, you know, when you're, when you're on the grad student side of things, you're like, or sometimes I'll do things like I'll just be like, I'll be an inadequate advisor. I mean, this is one of the things I struggle with the most is I feel like I'm constantly inadequate because I no longer have to answer just to myself, which is as a postdoc, I feel like that is, you're answering to yourself, you're answering to your lab. But I think most labs, you know, if you mess up, you don't work there anymore and they're gonna be a lab and they're gonna bring somebody else in to fill it. But now I, I answer to other people and I'm responsible for ensuring that other people are on paths towards success. And I feel like to me, that's the hardest part about being a PI is feeling like I'm constantly not putting in enough time not giving enough time to think about the projects that my people are working on, not giving them enough time to talk about things with them. Um, and, and I hope that part of that is just me being um, being overly uh, having super high expectations for myself and I'm just not meeting my own expectations. But I think it's just at some point you just don't have enough hours in the day to to actually to actually do all of it. And so sometimes I will be like, I'll have an interaction where I feel like I was inadequate and I'll look back to previous interactions I had with my mentors where when I was a graduate student and I felt like, how could this person possibly not remember what we talked about last week? Like this is the most important thing in the world. (laughs) And I'm like now that person who can't remember what we talked about last week because I didn't take adequate notes. And I feel like a, I feel like a jerk when it happens. Um, but it happens. Uh, so, so that's been one of the hardest parts is just kind of being on the other side of those relationships and learning really how hard it is to, to, to be there for people who have, who need you, who need, who need your, they rely on you for advice. And um, I mean, everybody in my lab is, is exceptionally talented and exceptionally independent. Right. But there's some things that they like, I need to approve orders. I need to like, you know, I promise them that I'll, that I'll look into something for them. And then I forget about it for the next week. Right. And then we have our next meeting and I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot to do that. Um, that's, that's been the hardest part for me, but I think I'm getting better at it. Um, but in part, that's kind of this idea that
3: you, so, so like, how did, how did it all start? So you arrive and you have like your office and this space. And so what's the first thing you do? You start Ordering equipment or do you order this before you even come or do you start looking for people who do you hire first? Yeah,
2: right. So, so that's, that's okay. Let's go back to square one. Right. So when I started, yeah, I walked in the door on my first day. I got yelled at by the security officer because I did not have an ID yet to get into the building. And it was also the first day of classes. So there's all these undergrads going by and he's like super stressed out. And I come like strolling through and he's like, hey, 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 yells at me. Um, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> um, I'm like I don't know. Uh, so yeah, on my first day, I got I, I finally got my ID card. I got keys to an office, um, and I didn't have any space yet. So so I get you know I don't know how much my situation is going to be the same as everybody else's, but when I started, I didn't have any space. I didn't have a permanent space, nor did I have a temporary space. I had an office, and so when I started, I was really there. Um, I mean, on paper I was on the faculty at NYU, but my tenure clock hadn't started yet. Um, and really I was still working as a postdoc. I was finishing up my last postdoc project. So I spent probably the first six to eight months writing, analyzing data and flying back and forth to North Carolina, which is where I did my postdoc to, um, to finish up a project. And so I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about, um, building my lab at that point yet, in part because I felt like I didn't have to, my tenure clock hadn't started yet. And, um, But in retrospect, I should have been, I really should have been. So then it was probably, so I started in September and it was probably in January that I started. So in January was when I got some temporary space so I could actually start buying equipment up until that point. It was really hard for me to even think about buying equipment. Um, I know a lot of people who buy equipment before they even leave their postdoc, especially if you have something like um, a K99 slash ROO, you can start spending charging to that. Um, some universities will give people access to their startup funds before they get there so they can start buying equipment. You can ship it to the university so that when you get there on day one, you have boxes to unpack and you have things to do. I think that sounds glorious. It's not the situation that I had. Um, when I got to NYU, it took several months. Finally, I got a temporary space and I could start ordering equipment and I could start thinking about hiring people. So that it was around, it was that winter that I started interviewing postdocs. Because the whole hiring people process takes a really long time. Uh, I'm sure you all know that like when you were thinking about becoming a postdoc, you start that process of kind of shopping around um, well before you're ready to defend. And then there's a whole bunch of factors that can determine how long it's going to be before you can actually start in the lab. Um, so I started recruiting people in January, maybe brought people in for interviews. And then my first postdoc probably started 10 months after that was the whole timeline. So the first few months, I did nothing other than continue to be a postdoc, despite the fact I had moved to New York City. The next few months, I had a temporary lab space, so I started to order an equipment and started to build some rigs. But I I felt at the time that I couldn't do too much because I knew it was a temporary space. So the question was, like, do I want to order a giant air table and build a two-photon microscope if I know that I'm going to have to move that microscope in six months? Um, The answer to that for me was pretty easily no, so I didn't do that right away then there was a question, of well, I could build some behavioral rigs. Those are a little bit easier to move right now, or I could maybe build some electrophysiology rigs. These are kind of my tools of the trade. Um, but I didn't build too much because my space was going to be ready in six months, and then six months became four months, and you know, it was chugging along really quickly. But what I didn't realize is that when your space is going to be ready in six months, that means it's going to be ready in 12 months. And so I didn't plan for that, even though I think people probably told me that that was the case. I was just naive about it and thought, ah, oh, my space is going to be ready in May. I don't have to worry about building too much stuff now because I can just be ready and build it all as soon as my doors open up. It's going to be amazing, right? But then it was six months later and my doors aren't open and the space is still not ready and there's the floors were installed incorrectly so I have to tear them up and reinstall them again and all of these things happen. Um, so it took a long time before I actually ended up ordering everything The plus side of that was that at some point I knew when the space was going to be ready, even though it was like two months away. And so I could start ordering all of my air tables, all of my really bulky equipment and have it ready. And the way it works in New York is that we can't have those types of things shipped directly to us. We have to have them shipped to a group of people that are called riggers. These riggers are people who can then bring the things in. So everything gets shipped to warehouses on Staten Island or in Brooklyn. And then they can sit there kind of indefinitely, we pay them to store things. And then when we need them, they bring them to us and they bring them in. Um, And it's doubly tricky though, because at NYU, we don't have a loading dock. So the only way to get things into the building is to literally unload them on the sidewalk on on the corner of Mercer and, and Washington Place, which is like right in the heart of Greenwich Village. And then you have to hire people to bring them in from the sidewalk into the building and then you get into the building, and there's an issue, which is that we are three old garment factories, two old garment factories plus a modern building that have all been built independently, but then uh, the, the corridors have been opened up on the inside. But the problem is this, the floors are staggered. So there are, the third floor on one building is not the third floor on the next building, so there's steps everywhere. So, if you go up the main elevator and you 're on the third floor, but you need to get to another building, you can't get there without going up steps. so, what do you do with an air table <laughs> so there's these circuitous pa- circuitous paths you have to take through the building that allow you to k- take several elevators and transitions on different floors to eventually get
0: where you need to be um, so, so that's where that ready grad ready. Yeah, that's where that grad school education of problem solving comes one hundred percent no
2: like so I, I would spend I would spend a lot of time walking through the corridors with a tape measure, like measuring out like pinch points in the corridors to figure out like what is the minimum uh how big does things have to be? Um, so, funny. so in some ways, the whole setting up the lab process for me became an elongated experience. Maybe more so than it does for other people, and I think that might have that might have made it a little bit easier because I didn't have to think about kind of doing everything at once. Um, I think it also it also made it a little bit harder because I feel like I was raring to go and I just wanted to like start the lab and get it ready. And so, at some point, it was I felt like I was just twiddling my thumbs and the lab wasn't ready yet and That made it a little bit harder. There was a lot more dead time. But the pro, the plus side was that uh I had a lot more time to plan things out. So that by the time the lab doors opened, my first postdoc started. I had recruited two graduate students, I'd recruited another postdoc who was gonna come in a couple of months, um, and I had all of the equipment scheduled to be shipped. So So
3: then you were all ready to
2: start. Then we were all ready to start. Finally, Finally, it happened. Exactly.
0: Um so I, I would encourage uh folks at home to uh, go back and listen to um, David's first interview on this podcast, just to get a, a bit of a, a refresher on the types of science that he does, um, but to do like the really abbreviated version. Um, you know, part of what um, uh, NYU recruited you for was to continue this line of work looking at um, interactions between motor cortex, auditory cortex and how basically um, the brain learns to make predictions about the consequences of an animal's behavior. So uh, an animal performs some actions in the world that a byproduct of that is some acoustic consequence. And um, there's there's this circuit that you've described of uh, motor cortical projections to inhibitory neurons and other types of neurons in auditory cortex that leads to this general effect of suppressing auditory input, specifically at learned, um, frequencies that, you know, the animals learned are consequences of its movement. Um, you're continuing this, this line of work. Um, uh, I assume, um, um, how do you learn, how do you negotiate or, or decide how you're going to differ? I mean, because a lot of the work that you've done in the past was with, with Rich Mooney. Um, how do you guys decide like what sort of aims of this? Are you going to tackle going into the future versus what's going to continue to go on at Duke and that sort of thing? Yeah.
2: <clears throat> so Rich, Rich and I, so when when I left the lab, Rich and I talked, talked quite a bit about it. And the, I think in my, in my particular situation, so just to give a little bit of background, the lab I was in, in a postdoc, as a postdoc, I studied mice in that lab, but that lab had historically been a bird song lab and was still primarily a bird song lab. And mice was just a, the mouse wing of the lab was a fairly, was a, was a much smaller component. Um, and the work that I was doing in the lab was started by a graduate student in the lab. And, um, he and I really pushed on it. Anders Nelson along with another grad student, Janani Sundarajan, And, um, and we, we we kind of took it to what we thought was kind of a nice end end point during my tenure in the lab um, at that point. My impression is that the, that Rich's interests in continuing to, he still had interests in studying mice, but they were moving more into a kind of different set of experiments than what I had been working on in the past. Um, so there just happened to be kind of a cleaner break point mm. that uh, yeah. the things that I had been working on, I think he was less interested in working on. He may be working on them a little bit, but um, my goal was to kind of use those technologies to run with them. And he was more interested in pursuing other directions. So it, it's it, there just happened to be a nice little break point there of dividing up the real estate of who is going to work on what. Yeah.
0: Cool. Um, and so, um, you know, looking forward, I mean, one thing that you, you mentioned to me, uh, over dinner was that, and one thing that I've known about you for a while is that you, you're always sort of, you know, aware of, you know, what some of the limitations of what you're doing at one point are, what, you know, the future might look like a little bit. And you made an interesting prediction that, you know, where we've been as a field, uh, you know, for the last decade or so of mouse cortical circuit does interesting behavior X might start to be less of an attracting point and more of like, you know, a limitation in terms of, you know, gaining funding or things like that. Um, I don't know if you want to expand on that idea at all or clarify that at all, but have you? I mean, as a grad student, you were studying songbirds and you made a nice transition to another songbird lab that was doing something in mice. And I know at the time you were interested in like all the genetic techniques that you can apply to the mouse and all the tools that you have in the mouse that you don't have in the songbird. So there's a very practical aspect of that. Do you foresee at some point, you know, after you've sort of made it through this early stage where you're sort of carrying out experiments that you've proposed that are based Largely on things that um, you've worked on in the past, making any more of those like big changes, like away from just say motor or auditory cortex or into, uh, is there some dream project that you have sort of baking in the back of your head?
2: I mean, the short answer really is, I think I'd go crazy if I didn't make big changes. I think that, and I think that's true of most people. I think you have to shake up. In fact, a colleague of mine at NYU was just visiting with me. I was visiting with him the other day and he mentioned how he feels that it's important every five or six years to really kind of like shake up the technologies that he's using in the lab in order to kind of just like remind yourself about kind of what's new and what's out there and how could you pursue problems differently if you, if you shake things up a little bit. Um... I certainly feel like, you know, when I started my postdoc and I moved from songbirds, which is a kind of niche field where we had, I mean, nowadays it's not so true, but we had kind of a limited suite of techniques that we could use. We really relied on the animals um, kind of natural, beautiful. I mean, most people who study songbirds rely on this beautiful. Um, singing behavior. We were studying the Joe and I. When I say we, we're studying the auditory system when we were graduate students together, which is also a beautiful system that's been designed to really process these. Um, has evolved to really process these complex sounds that the birds produce. Um, when I moved into the mouse, I felt I, I felt like even at that time that. Um, people were studying the mouse simply because the mouse had lots of fun tools and that there wasn't a real focus on, well, what are the interesting things that the mouse can do? It's like, let's make the mouse do interesting things. And then let's Mm -hmm. study the hell out of them. And let's do it by layering technique after technique after technique on top of them. And I remember when I started my postdoc, either I was thinking to myself or I said to somebody like, you know, what, the one thing I can guarantee is when I'm a postdoc, I'm not going to just layer the next fanciest technique onto, onto a mouse's Mm -hmm. brain. And, I feel like that's really what I did. I remember at some point I found myself doing this experiment where I had a mouse, a wake behaving mouse, standing atop a treadmill, running on a treadmill. I was I had was doing an intracellular membrane potential recording from an auditory cortical neuron. I had a multi-electrode array in the mouse's motor cortex. I was optogenetically turning on motor cortical terminals in the mouse's auditory cortex, and I was pharmacologically manipulating the mouse's motor cortex all at the same time. And, it was and you're most,
0: doing two-photon imaging. <laughs>
2: in, exactly, and it was like I, the mouse was through an augmented reality. It was the most ridiculous experiment I could ever imagine. I remember thinking to myself like This is just ridiculous," um, but at the same time, it worked, and it was it was fun. Um, but I, I like to, I guess I, I feel like I don't know the degree to which, like, let's just keep layering on. We learn so much about the brain through these new technologies and the mouse provides a platform for implementing these new technologies. That's really what the mouse gives us. Um, but I think we do need to think more deeply about the behaviors that we're studying. I don't think that the mouse is a poor model organism for lots of things. I think the mouse is probably an awesome model organism for lots of different things. I think we just need to think a little bit more deeply about what are the behaviors we want our mice to do and we need to be hypothesis driven in the experiments that we're designing to think about how can we understand how the brain is executing the computations and instantiating the the circuitry necessary to solve these computations in in a mouse that's actually exe- doing something interesting. And I think mice do tons of interesting things, right? They've evolved to survive in a in a in a world they like there's mice on my kid's playground. There's mice in my daughter's classroom at school. And they've evolved to navigate these situations that that are super complex. I mean, what I also really like about that is I, I say they've evolved to do this, and I really believe that they have. But sometimes I'll have conversations with people. I, I, so I don't study ethological behaviors in mice. I, I study what I would call engineered behaviors that we build in the lab um, where we take— We take movements that are, we engineer them to be very quiet. We monitor those movements as they're happening in real time. And we superimpose sounds upon those movements, arbitrary sounds that are completely unrealistic. And I've had conversations with people where they say, well, this is not ethological at all, right? And the mouse did not evolve to learn how to do this. But when I see mice navigating the New York City subway system or the playground or my child's school i'm like mice did not evolve to navigate a third grade classroom at a public school in new york city right they've taken advantage of the things that they have evolved to do to navigate new environments in the same way that a human did not evolve to play the electric guitar right but they evolved to have all of the skills that they need to play the electric guitar but i would say playing the guitar is a a beautiful human skill that i would call very ethological and meaningful to human existence um So saying that mice doing anything other than bearing marbles or something or solving a teenage, is that, are those ethological, you know, like, um, I think anything that the animal's doing at the moment that you've asked them to do that they can learn how to do is taking advantage of the internal ethology of that animal that they've evolved to do. And so I'm kind of arguing multiple points here, but I think that we need to be cognizant of that fact of, of, you know, maybe thinking a little bit more deeply about, well, okay, my animal can do this, but what's the reason why their brain has, has the capacities to solve this problem right now? Um, In many ways, you're sort of engineering tasks that let
1: you answer those questions, right? I think, especially in your task, I think, looking at it from a purely ethological standpoint it might have been much more difficult to identify some of these.
2: I'd say that's that is kind of we we do try to take a a really directed approach where we we think about an ethological behavior that is really meaningful to us so maybe that's like bird song or human speech learning and the idea is if you you can kind of distill that down to a few core conceptual principles and then we try to engineer behaviors that retain those core principles Mm -hmm. um And I hope that that's going to give us a path towards something. But one thing I really strive for in our lab is that once we find... So this gets us back to this kind of like, is there a future for publishing the cortical circuit for X as as the paper title, right? I, I think that we've suffered in the past from a bit of what I would call like an overfitting problem, which is that we will publish papers with titles, the cortical circuit for X, where X is an extremely simplified behavior that we've designed in the lab to be reminiscent of some much more complex behavior. And the X in the title is the complex behavior not the heavily engineered behavior that's happening in the lab. Um, and I think we have an overfitting problem because what we're effectively doing is extrapolating from the behaviors we have in the lab to assume that the circuit that we've been studying is going to extrapolate and cover these other behaviors that they were predicated upon. And I think that's a big problem. And so you know, I have some ideas for how we do this. I don't think we're actually doing this in the lab yet, but I would like to be able to take the things that we learn about the brain using these engineered behaviors and to then design more ethological or more naturalistic experiments in the lab using the mouse, maybe using other model organisms as well, um, that allow us to ask then, are the same neural circuits that we identify in these kind of simplified engineered lab-based behaviors actually important during the more complex behaviors that we think they should be important for And I, I think that's going to be really critical going forward. And I think there's going to be some degrees that we're going to be able to do that with a mouse. Um, but I think really bridging into other model organisms is also going to be key. I think, you know, there, there are a lot of other amazing model organisms out there that we're already using, but, you know, I was, I was on a panel about a year ago, and one of the questions that we got asked was, you know, what, would, what is the next technology you need in order to transform your neuroscience? What would help you answer questions that you can't ask? And I don't know what my answer was at the time, but I know that my answer now is that I would, I would much rather not have any new techniques. But be I wish that I could magically use any technique that I could use in the mouse right now in any model organism that I want. And I think that would transform neuroscience a hell of a lot more than having a, a half a dozen new techniques to use mm-hmm. in the mouse.
3: Reflecting on what you were just saying, do you think the field suffered a little from this overstatement? Uh, I mean, people were making these big conclusions probably to make it to such and such journal, to make their work more attractive and maybe fundable. And so, um, like, how would you, like, is this something you think about and you think about also in the way you teach maybe to your mentees now?
2: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's such a, I'm like nodding my head. Yes, that's right. And I'm saying, no, I don't think so. (laughs) But um, no, that's totally, it's such a tricky thing, right? Because I mean, this circles back to the whole job market thing is it's hard to get a job. It's competitive. And what helps you get a competitive edge on the job market is having a paper in a that's published in a journal that's been kind of uh, anointed as a, a gateway journal so to speak and so there's a motivation to get papers in said journals with you know but whatever means necessary i hope that whatever those means are, are not fabricating data or not you know um lying but but one way what might be to kind of like overstate claims and you hope that those will get kind of caught up in the review process but but they don't always and i think that in some cases. It's because people like reading flashy things. Even if you're a reviewer, sometimes you probably like reading a flashy thing as opposed to just like an incremental little addition to things. Um, and I think, I, I do think that that's, yeah.
3: Yeah. Everybody like the flash. Then it's like taken by like more general reviews mm-hmm. and like, then it's distorted. And then as a scientist, you read that and you're like shocked by like, Oh, someone found like the cure to Alzheimer's disease or whatever. Like, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, it made me think of this because it's something I think about quite often. That I think is then hurting, like how general public is also looking at science and and uh, yeah, like so. How do you? Anyways, like it was just a thought about like this whole
2: thing. Yeah, no, I think there's there's a huge um, there's a motivation there's there's an incentive structure in place for scientists to. S- try to kind of fit their, or I, I won't say like oversell their data, but to kind of like fit it to the broadest possible right. family of problems that could be applicable to. Um, and I, and I think that that's a problem, right? I mean, you read some old papers and and you'll like see these sentences like to say, like the findings we have, the findings we've just reported cannot be extrapolated beyond the frog neuromuscular junction. And I'm like, that's golden right there. Mm-hmm. like, we should all have those sentences in our in our papers, right? To be like, where can these findings not be extrapolated to? I think that's such a great thing to think about. And maybe we should put, maybe we should, you know, the, the eLife or something should build this in, like, we should have a section of, like, what your discussion section should have a thing of, how can we, what are the limitations on the interpretation? We should make this explicit. I think a lot of people do this in their, in their writing anyway. But if you do that too much, you're closing the door, I feel like, on possibly being published
3: in sure. some journals. And maybe no, that's okay. right, maybe that's wrong, but- make people- be more
0: interested in the science so like yeah maybe maybe the the useful exercise is to write two versions of the abstract one to the broadest possible audience you could conceive of and one to like the most niche one and then see which one feels more genuine and then sort of find something in the middle let's all <laughs> never do that <laughs> um, so we, we're, we're just about out of time um, David thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us today um, is there anything you want to plug any anything you're teaching in the, the spring that you want NYU students to check out?
2: Uh, yeah. NYU students out there, brain and behavior Tuesdays and Thursdays, 11, to 12, 15.
0: Uh, it's is it graded class. on a curve?
2: Um, boy, it's not graded on a curve, but I'm a pretty easy grader. So I'm
0: and a final or do you have lots of quizzes?
2: There's not a lot of quizzes. There's three midterms, but
0: you can drop your lowest score.
2: Oh, nice. So, um, you know, I think the class is already overbooked though. So if you missed it this semester, it's offered every semester.
0: Or if you missed the midterm on April 20th, like you can just forget about it.
2: Why would they miss that midterm? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either.
0: Um, you can follow David on Twitter at Schneider Neuro. Um, again, David's an assistant professor in the center for neural science at NYU. Um, Keep your eyes peeled for lots of great science coming out of his his new lab. You have three postdocs and two grad students and a and a research assistant now, right? That's spot on. It's yeah. a pretty it's a pretty uh, rapid development, I would say. Uh, you can uh, Audrey, you're not on Twitter yet. Not yet. Stay tuned. She'll get on there. Uh, Jeremy's at JT Chang. I'm at JW Science. Uh, you can follow us at at Neuro Podcast. Is there anything else? Subscribe on things, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Yep. Uh, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Cool. Thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to Neurotransmissions. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. Connect with us on Twitter at NeuroPodcast and at Facebook.com slash NeuroPodcast. This has been a production of the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience.